You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. The Stanton Library and the Writers at Stanton program, held in conjunction with Constant Reader Bookshop. There's Jay up the back. I'm Ian Hoskins, North Sydney Council's historian. We gathered on Camaragal country. The first part of their territory at Kirribilli was given away without treaty or compensation in 1794. Much of the rest followed by 1840. Our speaker today is John Howard, who really needs little introduction, so I will be brief. Mr Howard was elected as the member for Benelong in 1974 and remained as such until 2007. In between, he served four terms as Prime Minister between 1996 and 2007, the second longest prime ministerial term behind Robert Menzies. During that time, of course, Mr Howard was also a frequent resident of Kirribilli House, so welcome back to North Sydney. (laughs) Mr Howard's political memoir, Lazarus Rising, was published in 2010. His exploration of the prime ministership of Robert Menzies, the Menzies era, was released in 2014. The subject of John's talk today is his most recent book, A Sense of Balance. Its subject is the challenge facing Australia's people and politicians in a time of great change. The rise of climate change as an election issue, proposed constitutional change with the Indigenous voice to Parliament, the pending end of Queen Elizabeth's reign as Australia's monarch, the legacy of the war on terror, rising inequality, the wake of the chaotic Trump presidency and the rise of an assertive China. And I suspect the final edits were being made as Australia headed towards its most recent federal election, which saw a Labor victory after nine years of coalition government. The publication of A Sense of Balance coincided with revelations of um, Scott Morrison's shared portfolios, and many of Mr Howard's recent interviews have been dominated by that issue. So I'm looking forward today to hearing him talk about his book. So please join with me in turning your phones to silent and welcoming John Howard. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for those um, very warm words of introduction. Um, I should, of course, say that I haven't returned to North Sydney. I've sort of been a resident of these parts for uh, since um, 1973. Uh, and, um, and just to sort of fill you in on a bit of local history affecting me, if I may, um, as a reminder of the vagaries of electoral boundaries, when I was first the member for Benelong, the southern boundary of the Benelong electorate was Hazelbank Road, North Sydney, that beautiful uh, 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 tree-lined street. And when I was expelled as the member for Benelong in 2007... The southern boundary of my electorate had become Pitwater Road Gladesville, which gives you an idea of how. And I have no complaint. Uh, Those boundary changes were perfectly legitimate. And if I can go straight to my book on that very point, I do, in the book, talk about the political system of the United States and, to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom, because... The British political system is much closer to ours than the American one is. But the point I do make very strongly is that electoral boundaries in Australia are drawn fairly compared with America. In America, just about 80% of the boundaries are predetermined because one, either Democrat or Republican, because they're drawn by state governments, or they don't call them governments, state administrations, and they are drawn in a completely partisan fashion. And, of course, the expression gerrymander originated because Governor Jerry, I forget the state that he was governor of, drew some boundaries and they said, that's, that's, they're not boundaries, they're salamanders. And, of course, uh, from then on, the name gerrymandered was given to rigged boundaries. 
But um, the reason why I decided to write this book initially was that I was quite fascinated, no, even enraged at the way in which um, people who appoint themselves, sometimes legitimately, often illegitimately, as expert public commentators, the way in which these people, not only in the UK and the US, but also around the world and certainly in Australia, um, the way in which they reacted in such a critical, patronising, dismissive way when the British people voted in favour of Brexit to leave the European Union and the American people elected Donald Trump. Now, I should declare at the beginning that I was in favour of Britain leaving the European Union and uh, I didn't, of course, have a vote, but if I had, I would have voted to leave. I was very ambivalent, I declare, uh, way back in 2016 about Donald Trump being elected president of the US, I think I said that I would tremble at the thought of Donald Trump becoming president. And of course, in the end, I say in the book that he is unfit to return to the presidency of the United States, largely because of his behaviour after he lost the election. Because one of the ingredients of a successful democracy is that you have a seamless transfer of power. I mean, I'm quite certain that Paul Keating didn't like losing to me in 1996, and I can attest that I did not like losing to Kevin Rudd in 2007. But that is the nature of politics. And I did write to Anthony Albanese, Australia's uh, Prime Minister, uh, to congratulate him on his electoral victory and to say that both of us should be proud that we live in a country that boasts a seamless transfer of power. And if you try and undermine that, you are really threatening democracy. So I wanted to examine why um, <clears throat> there was such a, a deluge of criticism of the decision of the British people and the American people in relation to Brexit and Trump. And uh, the first substantive chapter uh, in my book is entitled The Mob, How Dare They? In other words, a lot of the commentary was pretty condescending. It said, oh, these rather poorly educated people who live in the north of England uh, who felt that their jobs were threatened by too much immigration from East Europe not from the Middle East, but from Eastern Europe. Now, I'm not saying that I agreed with it. I, I, I don't profess to have studied it enough uh, to declare a final position. But there was a condescending tone. And then, of course, it was applied equally to the criticism of the allegedly poorly educated people of the Middle West of the United States who had seen their jobs not only threaten but disappear because of um, uh, export replacement and, and the shift in trade from the United States uh, to China. And I then examined why was it that some of these trends had not been picked up in advance in both of those countries and that led me to an examination which is really the, <clears throat> I suppose, principal take out of the book and the examination of the membership of political parties. And over the years, it's fair to say that the membership of political parties in the US, in the UK, in Australia, and I guess all other countries that can claim legitimately to have been continuously democratic for a long period of time, the membership of political parties has uh, narrowed, become far more um, likely to be composed of people who've spent their entire life working in politics. 
And I think one of the regrettable trends that we see in politics now is the emergence of somebody who will leave school, probably not always, go to a university. If that man or woman, woman is of labour disposition, you perhaps have a period of working in the union office and then you go and work on the staff uh, of an existing politician and then you hope to marshal the numbers to get a seat. On the Liberal side, you might give the union a miss or it might give you a miss, but you do the same thing. Now, is this always wrong? No, it's not. And there are some wonderful people who uh, have gone into politics through that path. But it can be unbalanced. And one of the things that my research revealed to me was that the Labor cabinet of Ben Chifley, it was defeated in 1949 by Menzies, it was a very interesting mix. Chifley, of course, famously had been an engine driver and it's one of the great sort of stories of Australian public life from engine driver to Prime Minister. And we're proud of that and so we should be, whatever your politics are. And uh, his cabinet was an interesting mix. There was the engine driver who'd become the Prime Minister. There was a former High Court judge uh, Herbert Veer Evatt, who'd stood down from the High Court in 1940 to run for the seat of Barton, which uh, now uh, is represented, I think, by Linda Burney uh, in the Federal Parliament. And there were two farmers. There were one or two people who, were still, who would still call their careers soldiers. There was a publican, um, John Armstrong. There was a tobacconist. Now, that is practically a criminal offence now, to be a tobacconist, but he was a tobacconist from Lithgow. And there were a number of people, of course, who'd been as well trade union officials. The point simply made was a very mixed group. Uh, I compare that with the Albanese cabinet, and I offer no criticism of this. I simply observe that I think the only member of that cabinet who has been, who can say he or she had a long-term career outside of politics was the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, who uh, comes from Victoria and uh, was uh, and still is, of course, a Queen's Counsel. So it's a, an observation that can be made equally of the coalition side of politics. I remember when I was a junior minister in... Um, the Fraser government, the criticism made quite noisily on occasion was that there were too many farmers. And, of course, there were a lot of farmers. And they did tend to think alike. And, and, uh, but they weren't farmers of the Pitt and Collins Street variety. They were people like Peter Nixon from Victoria who'd been you know, a, a genuine farmer. And, of course, I had experience in my own with John Anderson, my Deputy Prime Minister and a you know, person who character-wise, I've, I've not met a finer person in public life than John Anderson. He's a fifth-generation wheat grower from Gunnedah. Now, they, of course, people with a rural, genuine rural background uh, bring a lot. And, of course, the other thing that I found when I went into federal parliament was that many of the dominant figures on the Labor side of politics who'd had a trade union background were not people who'd gone straight into a union office. They'd actually, in the case of Clyde Cameron, shorn a lot of sheep and they'd done a lot of very practical work and had an understanding uh, of uh, uh, the circumstances in which many people work. So I emerged from that study satisfied that the composition of political parties and is not only is narrow, not only are they numerically smaller than they used to be, but I think the uh, background and the knowledge base is a lot narrower now than used to be the case. And uh, I don't think we benefit from having a parliament which is dominated by people whose only life experience 
has been working in a political environment. I mean, I practised law for 12 years before I entered Parliament, and um, I did, I mean, I was fanatically interested in politics, but I did politics at night and at the weekend. Uh, now, of course, there's a career path. Every member of Parliament has four staff. Nothing wrong with that. Um, when I was first elected, I had one staff, and then the extra staff were added over time uh, to bolster the political capacity of individual officers. Now, probably there's an argument for having more than I had, but whether, and there's a bit of a debate going on at the moment, which I won't get into, about uh, the government's treatment uh, of staffing arrangements. So I leave you with that thought. That's one of the things that emerged. And along the way, of course, when you start writing a book like this, you must talk about some of the ongoing challenges. There's a very large chapter on our relations with China, which is undoubtedly the most challenging um, foreign policy issue we have. I have a chapter on the monarchy. Uh, I have a chapter on climate change. I have to declare that although I'm not a religious agnostic, I am an agnostic on climate change. That may disappoint some, it may cheer others, but um, I am, uh, I'm unconvinced uh, about some of the climate change uh, uh, delirium that is uh, overtaking the world and, and not least Australia. And of course I included a chapter on the most recent federal election and offer some thoughts of mine as to why the coalition lost. I make the observation that the primary vote uh, of the Victoria's Labor Party was at 32.75%, the lowest primary vote of any Victoria's party since World War II. And I also, though, in case you think I'm not being even-handed, um, uh, the primary vote of the defeated coalition was only 35%. And uh, it, it tells us something about the mood. Now, of course, we live in a seat that attracted an enormous amount of attention. Well, not all of this, but we, we have this meeting in the seat of North Sydney, which, of course, was one of the seats that elected a Teal candidate, the seat in which um, uh, I have been continuously resident and uh, for uh, uh, a very long period of time. Now, I say something about the Teals, and I, I make the observation that the Teal candidates, there were obviously some local factors, but there was a remarkable uniformity in the movement. Now you look at the result here and you look at the result in Curtin in Western Australia, which includes the most uh, previously seen as rusted on liberal areas of metropolitan Perth, and this, the movement was substantially similar. Why do I think it occurred? I think it occurred because there was, for a combination of reasons, a desire on the part of people to have a change of government. A lot of those people were unenthusiastic about voting Labor, uh, not only because of um, their historic predilection to vote Liberal, but also perhaps because they didn't feel very confident about what was being offered. The other point to bear in mind is that I think the election of the Teals saw a lot of tactical voting. If you were a Labor person in uh, Curtin in Perth or somebody in Lane Cove uh, here in Sydney and you wanted to defeat Mr Morrison, what would you do? You would think to yourself, well, I can vote Labor as I always do, but actually I could probably be more useful uh, by voting for a Teal because she is more... Li and they're all she's, all of the female candidates uh, represented. Uh, it's a very interesting thing to which I'll come in a moment. I think there was a lot of tactical voting in the seat of Goldstein in Victoria, which is the Sandringham, Brighton area of metropolitan Melbourne, the 
decline in the Labor vote was much greater than the decline in the Liberal vote, which means that I think there are a lot of tactical Labor voters, and, and you can do that. It's quite legitimate uh, and uh, nothing wrong with it at all, but it, it shows a sophisticated an understanding of the electoral system. So I offer some views, and maybe this might be further developed in questions about the future direction of the coalition. Naturally, as a lifelong Liberal, I'm interested in the future of my party, and I'm interested uh, broadly in the contest between the two major parties. I am, I hope, above everything else, a Democrat. Uh, I accept that you have to obey the will of the people. I nonetheless offer the view that political stability in Australia uh, is best achieved by having an essentially two-party system with the capacity through preferential voting, capacity to disturb that or threaten to disturb that because I can assure you that when a political party that's been in power for almost 10 years loses and it loses to a party that polls fewer primary votes than it polled, which of course happened at the last election, it starts to take a good look at itself and think, what is wrong with the way that we have conducted ourselves? What are the changes that must be made? I also talk in the book about some of the maladies, the deficiencies of the Liberal Party, the growth of factionalism. I think the best statement that Peter Dutton has made since he became leader of the opposition when he said, I am not a conservative, I'm not a moderate, I'm a Liberal. And uh, I joined the Liberal Party of Australia not because I felt I was um, uh, particularly conservative, although I obviously was and remain on quite a number of issues. I espouse, as many of you know, the, the doctrine of the broad church within the Liberal Party. Uh, it's a mixture of people who have conservative views. I have conservative views on things like the monarchy, uh, but I have what I regard as liberal, almost radical views uh, on things such as industrial relations. And uh, so I think our party, the Liberal Party, uh, is, is a mixture uh, of, of those two streams. So it's what you might call a, a mixed bag as a book, whereas the one I wrote about my autobiography covered an enormous range of subjects. Um, it was telling my story in politics and the book I wrote about the Menzies era and recalling that I was 10 years of age when Menzies became Prime Minister of Australia and uh, when... Um, the 23-year uh, term of the coalition ended with Whitlam's famous victory in 1972. My wife and I had been married for a bare 18 months and so it, it was a natural thing to look back and survey uh, that period and, of course, the Menzies era, era had an enormous impact on Australia. What is the central message of this book? Well, there's no central message. Uh, I always think it's a bit of a mistake when you're writing political books uh, unless you are convinced that you are the one repository of ultimate wisdom on a particular subject. It's always <laughs> a bit of a mistake to say, well, the central message of this book is to demonstrate how much I know and how little uh, uh, the people who disagree with me might know. It is uh, an attempt to talk about a number of particular things, to talk about the way in which we are very much now a nation of non-joiners. Um, many of you may be aware of um, a book written by an American sociologist called Robert Putman. It was called Bowling Alone. And um, what a came out, I think, in 1980. And what um, he concluded, and this was the origin of the title, he concluded that whereas the 
generations that um, existed uh, up until uh, those who contributed in... Uh, the Americans call them the generation that fought in World War II as the greatest generation. I, I can understand why the Americans would do that because um, uh, the impact of the Great War was far less on the United States uh, than uh, it was on Australia or the United Kingdom or the nations that participated in it from the very beginning. But Putman's conclusion and gave the title of his book was that people stopped joining organisations in the 60s. And you know, that's probably an experience all of us had had in relation to our friends and our families. They didn't necessarily lose interest in um, particular attitudes or values or sports, but and the bowling alone came he, was the fact that he discovered that um, historically in America, going to a bowling alley was a something for groups of friends. But more and more he discovered through research that people went to bowling alleys to, on their own. And uh, it was beer and pizza sales. They had declined very, very sharply at bowling alleys, which demonstrated, and from that he, he built this very interesting narrative. Now, it, it's affected everything. I mean, it, it affected attendance at parents and citizens and parents and friends organisation. It affected church attendances and it's affected political parties. Now, it's relevant for a book like mine because I'm talking about politics and it has, I suppose, reinforced the phenomenon of declining memberships. So it is a collection of thoughts about a number of subjects and I do talk extensively about China. It, it is our biggest foreign policy challenge. Uh, may I say at the outset I have no argument with the way in which the new government has thus far handled the relationship because if you look at it objectively, successive Australian governments have reacted in a fairly similar fashion towards China. China is <coughs> of enormous importance to Australia for a number of reasons. Firstly, we're 1.4 million Australians with Chinese heritage. The Chinese language collectively uh, is now the most widely spoken foreign language in Australia. 25, 30 years ago, I guess it would have been Greek. Um, China, of course, is our greatest export destination. Hadn't been for the Chinese market, we would have suffered a lot more from the global financial crisis. On the other hand, China is a very dictatorial, internally rigidly controlled, brutal country. And uh, I have have dealt with, in, in government, I dealt with... President Jiang Zemin, who in many ways was the most uh, uh, interesting foreign leader I met, with his successor, Hu Jintao, they were vastly different in temperament and behaviour from the current president. The current president is more aggressive, more assertive uh, internationally. Jiang Zemin was a fascinating character, and I'll end on a couple of anecdotes of my interactions with him. Jiang Zemin was fascinated by Western music and a lot of Western culture. He professed to me that he was a, a regular listener of uh, works of, of both of Beethoven uh, and of Chopin. He spoke very good conversational English. I cannot attest to the next statement because I don't understand Russian, but he apparently could speak very good Russian. He was of an age where he'd spent a lot of his early years uh, studying in the Soviet Union. And um, he was a person who had also studied Shakespeare, so much so that when he learned that my wife, uh, who had been an English and history high school teacher, um, when he learned that uh, she had taught Shakespeare would actually quote from Shakespearean plays and ask of my wife that she nominate the play and <laughs> Shakespeare. And I'm very proud to say Jeanette was never caught out. 
uh, and uh, but the I, I guess the feast of resistance of Jiang Zemin was at the APEC meeting in Shanghai in 2001. He was the host. He'd gone out of his way to uh, welcome George Bush because it was only six weeks after the attack uh, on the World Trade Centre in 9-11. And there is always a cultural performance at APEC meetings. Sometimes they are good and sometimes they go on a bit long. But anyway, there's always a cultural performance. And we had the cultural performance and the ensemble all afterwards over went on to the stage to the tune of, would you believe, Old Lang Syne. And after that, I was sitting next to him at something, and I said, Mr President, tell me, interesting, Old Lang Syne. Ah, he said, John, you remember that wonderful movie, Waterloo Bridge? And I, unfortunately, you know, I had I mean, I remember Waterloo Bridge, Robert Taylor and Vivian Lee, and, 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 and um, he said... At a very sentimental moment in that, he said, they played Old Lang Syne. Now, I've never forgotten it. And because he, he was so emphatic about it, I, I daren't sort of question. I said, well, you must be right. And sure enough, I checked later and it was. It was absolutely right. It was just he was an extraordinary man. And um, <clears throat> a dedicated communist and, you know, he... <clears throat> He, he, he swatted away any rivals uh, uh, very expeditiously, but he had a different mindset about cooperation with the rest of the world. Uh, I thought it was a better mindset than Xi Jinping, but uh, uh, that, such is the vagaries of that political system. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think I should stop there. They are a collection of thoughts about a book which is a collection of thoughts about Australian and world politics and I do want to thank um, the library and Constant Reader. This is not the first of these events I've done, but um, uh, whether it'll be the last is another matter. But I, I didn't think I'd write any more books until I became enraged at the reaction of the metropolitan elites at the, uh, at the uh, um, decision of the British people and the Americans and... Uh, Anyway, from that has come a sense of balance and I suppose the last thing I'd say about it is that one of the great things about this country is we, we do have a better sense of balance on a lot of issues and many other countries and long may it remain. Thank you. When I was welcoming you back to North Sydney, I was referring to the LGA. Is that... Not the, not the seat of North Sydney. Did I get that wrong? You, you live in the well, LGA? Yeah, but I'm in, I'm in uh, you know, without disclosing my precise... No, 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 I didn't, yeah. No, 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 <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm in the... Um, uh, I pay rates to the North Sydney... Oh, I'm government. sorry. Well, that's my, my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and this is your local library. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I know who gets the money. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, though, on that, I'm seeing I'm... I've identified myself as a Liberalist. No, I am not in favour of the Liberal Party being involved in local government elections. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say I don't sort of look at the way people behave when they're elected. There's a lot of people here, and this is being recorded, so um, that means that asking questions need to be um, asked through a, a microphone. I'd rather not pass the microphone around. Um, a, it's going to take a long time and B, lots of people got masks on. So I'm going to repeat the questions and I'll ask you also, because there are so many people here, to keep your questions pretty succinct, not to engage in commentary and not to have a sneaky second question. That, that way people get to ask, everyone gets to ask a question who wants to. And I can see someone with a hand up there. So if you yell out your question and I'll say it again too. Do you, do you think we're over-governed? Yep. Look, um, literally, yes. Is it going to change? No. Uh, I, this is something on which I agree with Gough Whitlam. 
Um, he said that if we were starting all over again, we should have a central government and then 14 regional governments. But you can't start all over again. We were separately settled colonies uh, by the British. And um, if you had a referendum to abolish one of the levels of government, you'd get different results in different parts of the country. Somebody say, you know, in, in say, in Sydney, you'd get a... You, they'd, I reckon most people in Sydney would vote for the federal government and probably local government, unless so for state. But in some other parts of the country, some of them might not vote for the federal government at all. <laughs> so, and, now it, I mean, it's, it, it's understandable that people feel that way, but we're far less governed than the Americans. I mean, they have votes for everything because we have a parliamentary system. I mean, they have votes for local police chiefs, they have votes for... It's extraordinary, and as well as state, and they have primaries. I mean, if you're an American politician, you spend your whole life raising money for the next campaign, and every member of the House of Representatives is up for election every two years. I mean, I, I, I think three years is too short, but one of the oddities of our system is that certain things are vow-shaped to Parliament, um, the size of the Parliament, but other things, like the length of the parliamentary term, are in the Constitution. And off to your left, Mr Howard, a question here. Mr Howard, are you concerned about how far right the Liberal Party seem to be going? No, I don't think it's going too far right. I think um, a bit of a propaganda job's been done on us on that. I don't think we're... I mean, I keep reading about the hard right and the extreme right. I mean, sure, there are some people who are too right-wing, but not as a, as a group. I mean, I was occasionally accused of being right-wing, but, but I think that was inaccurate, but you may disagree, others may disagree. I don't think the Liberal Party has gone too far right. I think one of the things, one of the, things the Liberal Party has to do is to avoid others defining it by reference to whether you're a conservative or a moderate. That's why I made a comment I did about Peter Dutton. Uh, the Liberal Party does best when it behaves like a, a broad church. I mean, there was a time when I think the Labor Party was too left-wing, but that was my view. It wouldn't have been the view of many people in the Labor Party. I wouldn't make that view now express that view now. I'll wait and see how it behaves in government. But certainly the most successful Labor Prime Minister in my lifetime, Bob Hawke, by a country mile, uh, he, he was not somebody who I would call left-wing. Um, but there was a time when he had a position on things like nuclear disarmament that were regarded as left-wing. But in government, he governed close to the centre. You have to govern with proper regard to the centre when you're in government, no matter who you are. But you also have to avoid the mistake of thinking that political salvation lies in eliminating all of the differences between you and the other side of politics because that disillusions some of your own supporters. I mean, I heard people say, some of them said it to me when I complained about the attitude of the former government and the attitude of the current state government, attitude on certain things. I said, oh, you know, I complained about it. And, I, and they said to me, oh, don't worry, the Conservatives have got nowhere to go. Well, people have always got somewhere to go if an alternative is offered. And I think a lot of those Conservatives at the last election found somewhere to go and it helped eject a Liberal government. You can't take your base for granted. And there's one up the back, Mr Howard. Mr Howard, thanks for the book and, and your time. Um, it's often been said since the election that the Coalition can't form government again without winning the Teal seats back. I just wondered if you agreed with that and if you did, what that looks like. And related to that, um, just the decline in home ownership, how, how big a threat do you think that is to the Liberal Party going forward? There was an interesting SMH article, I think last week, saying that of the, the, the top 20 seats with the highest proportion of renters, the Liberal Party don't hold any of them. So I just wondered, as a big trend, how big you see that? Well, um, 
I think it's unlikely that the Liberal Party will <clears throat> get back into government without regaining at least some of the seats it lost. But I don't share for a moment this idea that we should have a separate strategy for seats like North Sydney and, and Curtin uh, and uh, another strategy for seats like um, Lindsay, which is Penrith, and you, you have to appeal to everybody. I think what the Teal phenomenon demonstrates is you can't take your base for granted. Um, I do think that um, uh, many professional women were attracted to the Teals. I say, and I thought the former Prime Minister's criticism of Christine Holgate was uh, a, a big mistake. Um, and uh, I, I, I've said that in my book. But I equally um, am not persuaded that the vote for the Teals represents a permanent shift. I mean, you could have a, a surge back from many people, particularly uh, if there are economic considerations involved. Now, I'm, I think you have to fashion a strategy to um, win back North Sydney and Goldstein, but also fashion a strategy to hang on to seats like Lindsay. And one of the interesting things about the election was the assertiveness and, and the su relative success of very good local candidates and members, of which, of course, the victory of Di Lee in, uh, uh, in Fowler against Christina Keneally was, was the outstanding example. I mean, if ever there was a demonstration of contempt by a major party for locals. It was that. And the Liberal member for Herbert, which is based on Townsville, which is the most um, garrison city uh, in, in, in the country, uh, he increased his majority by 3%. And the girl in um, uh, McIntosh, Melissa McIntosh in Lindsay increased hers by a lesser amount. So there was some interesting which all adds to a narrative that says that there was a breaking up of some of the traditional voting patterns. And whether that continues and gathers pace will depend on how the coalition behaves and obviously how the Labor Party governs. And, and one off here to your far left, Mr Howard. Mr Howard, I haven't had the privilege of reading your book yet, but you made reference to a chapter on the monarchy, I wonder if you had an insight or an anecdote on any meeting with the Queen or anybody of royal note. <laughs> well, I, I, will, I, I will disappoint you all and observe all the conventions and, and not talk. Um, now, let me say this, that um, I think any vote on the monarchy now, that's like, if it, you could have it in the next a few months or something, would, would produce an even stronger pro-monarchy result than the last one. But clearly, and I say this in my book, when the Queen dies, as <laughs> will inevitably occur at some stage, um, there will be a reassessment. Uh, how long that will be, where that will lead, I, I don't know. People say to me, do you think there'll be a republic in Australia in 10 years' time? And I say, well, ask me in 10 years' time. I think that's a pretty good answer for somebody of my age to give. <laughs> and and uh, um, look, I, I make a case, as you might expect, for retention of the current system. I think it does work well. I, I was interested, incidentally, that the Matt Tisselwaite, who's the Labor spokesman on these matters, um, made the comment that if we had had an independent head of... I think he used the word independent head of state, then Mr Morrison would not have been able to appoint himself to all of those ministries. Well, I found that a very interesting statement because what he clearly contemplated by that, <clears throat> that a head of state in an Australian republic would see himself or herself as playing an active political role. Now, whether you are a monarchist or a republican, um, that attitude is completely antagonistic to what we regard as good government. 
I mean, I, I've, I had a lot of conversations on this issue with people who were uh, minimalist Republicans. They said, look, we think we should no longer have the Queen uh, or her heirs and successors. We should have somebody who's, but do, who does exactly the same thing as the Queen or the Governor-General. In other words, you have a non-political head of state. Now, when you're saying that, as he did, and he's the spokesman on the subject, that he would think it'd be good to have a head of state who was politically involved, that's an interesting admission. Um, so I, I mean, obviously the Queen uh, has done a remarkable job. Uh, I, I think it's very hard even for rusted on Republicans to, to argue otherwise. And I can well remember, um, I don't think I've mentioned this in the book, but I certainly remember it, um, the late Neville Rand, who I had great regard for as a politician. We disagreed very strongly on the Republic. He said to me, he said, the, the problem is that the Queen is so bloody popular. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's true. So I, I, don't, I think our present system does work well, but my view is that there will be a, a reassessment. And that won't necessarily lead to a change, but it will just be a point at which people, even the most ardent, will say, well, you know, but I think most of them might well conclude that it works pretty well. There's one last question up the back here. Mr. Certainly. Um, how do you think politics are going to play out with governments with just 30% primary votes? I'm sorry? How do you think politics will play out with governments getting 30%, you know, forming governments with 30% of the primary vote? I think... Um, well, I hope that it will lead to both of the major parties properly trying to assess why it happened. Now, when I was elected in, well, the coalition won in 1996, uh, the coalition's primary vote was 47%. When Kevin Rudd was elected Prime Minister, the Labor Party won um, a comfortable majority. The Labor primary vote was 44 and 45%. And that's a very big decline. And I think what it, it sends a message that you can't take um, constituencies for granted. And why do, we, why do parties take them for granted? I think one of the reasons is that there aren't enough, um, for want of a better uh, expression, there aren't enough zealous idealists in the two major parties. I mean, many people joined the Labor Party uh, year, in years past, many do now, because they feel there are economic and social injustices and inequities, and they want to do something about it. And many people join the Liberal Party because they think the government is involved in too much, that they believe very strongly in private enterprise and we're not paying enough deference to that. Now, and, they, and, and having, done, having joined for that reason, they're the things they fight for. Now, I think that's less so. I'm not saying you don't have idealists in both parties, but I think more and more uh, we have <coughs> people who see politics almost as a game. I mean, I do talk in the book about leadership changes. And one of the things I found very interesting was that until the removal of, and I'm speaking here of the Liberal Party, un until the removal of Tony Abbott uh, as, as leader, the two previous occasions when there'd been big events in the coalition on leadership, first one had been when John McEwen said that he would not serve uh, in a government led by Bill McMahon as a leader of the Liberal Party. And the other was the decision of the Liberal Party in 1971 effectively to get rid of um, John Gorton as Prime Minister. Now, despite all the talk about personality clashes, both of those decisions were founded on policy differences. McEwen was, and I admired him very much as an effective political operator, and as a leader of the then country party, McEwen was um, a, a protectionist. 
He believed in government intervention in the economy. McMahon, for all that he was criticised by many at the time and later was more a free trader, believed in more deregulation. McEwen and McMahon had argued bitterly about the value of the Australian dollar uh, at a time when the dollar was fixed by administrative fiat rather than the market. But when Tony Abbott was replaced by Malcolm Turnbull, um, the stated reasons weren't on fundamental policy. The two issues on which they most heavily disagreed, namely uh, the Republic and same-sex marriage, were the subjects of free votes in the Liberal Party. You could vote any way you wanted on, on, on those issues. So they, there were other reasons, and I think that's something that we have to bear in mind, that once you lose the values stream or it's diluted and political parties are seen less and less as standing for particular things, even when you violently disagree with them, um, you start to see a fragmentation. And I think the Liberal Party has to look to that and equally the Labor Party has to. It's probably less likely to do because it's one, but if it's sensible, it will understand um, that uh, it didn't win by much. And I hope it's not sensible, but uh, you know, that's a personal view. <laughs> much, Mr Howard. Are you, you're going to sign some books at the back? Yes. Have you got time for that? I'm happy yeah. to do whatever you great. want. Great. Well, please join with me in thanking Mr Howard for a great talk. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.